Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Joining us today is Kevin Caldwell, CEO of Osseum Health, a company with the mission of improving the health, vitality, and longevity of human beings through bioengineering, in particular, using stem cell science to make materials for cell therapies. I love the idea behind Osseum, which we'll talk about in a moment, and I've wanted to have Kevin on the show ever since meeting him at an on-deck longevity biotech social event last year. I don't know how the time got away from us, but the important thing is he's here now. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chris. All right, let's dive in. If I remember my high school Latin, osseum is Latin for bone, right? That's right. The Romans used the term medulla osseum for middle of the bone, and that's uh, how they describe bone marrow, which is the basic thing that osseum makes. Okay, great. So, uh, Kevin, what are you doing with people's bones? Well, every year in the United States, there are about 20,000 people diagnosed with uh, leukemia who go looking for a bone marrow transplant. And of those people, about 55, 60% succeed at finding a matching bone marrow donor and receiving a transplant. There's another 40% of those people who ultimately do not receive a transplant. Many of those people die while looking for a donor. Other people become so weak during the process of searching for a donor that they're, they're taken off the list. There are also many emerging applications of the stem cells that are native to the bone marrow, treatments for diseases of inflammation, treatments that enable people to receive organ transplants without immunosuppression that are in various stages of clinical research now. And so if we could just increase the availability of bone marrow, that would enable us to do more bone marrow transplants for blood cancer patients, as well as really unlocking and accelerating a lot of these new and exciting emerging applications of, of stem cell therapies. And so Osseum has developed a process for processing and banking bone marrow from organ donors, cryopreserving that, those cells, and then doing a further sort of selection and engineering on the cells to prepare them for different uh, clinical applications. So we're going to talk all about Osseum for the duration of the conversation. But before we do that, I want to ask you just one question about yourself. We have a lot of PhDs and MDs on the show and a few MBAs, although we honestly try to keep that to a minimum. But I think you're the first JD. So how did a lawyer find himself in the stem cell business? You know, I've done a lot of different things throughout my career. You probably can't tell from my lack of a Southern accent, but I grew up on a, a farm in Tennessee with my grandparents. And... One of the things that I really fell in love with during my years growing up was just studying the stars. I got a, a telescope when I was like in middle school and, and it ended up being the single gift that I spent the most time with growing up. And so when I went into college, I, I decided to study astrophysics because I couldn't imagine anything more exciting than understanding the workings of the universe. By the time I was a few years into college, I realized that I didn't want to be a professor. I wanted to, to build things. And that's pretty much what you do with astrophysics. And so I added an economics major with the idea that I probably want to do something in business at some point um, without being sure what yet. By the time I got to my uh, senior year, I'd finished all of the course requirements for both majors and I had a little bit of extra space in my schedule. And so I, I cross-registered 
for constitutional law uh, because it was something different. I thought, why not? Uh, I ended up falling in love with it. And so I decided to go to law school, really enjoyed studying law. But, you know, I interned at a couple of law firms during the summers and realized that the practice of law for me was not as exciting as the study of it was. And so I finished my law degree and, you know, I had a degree in physics and didn't want to be a physicist and a degree in law and didn't want to be a lawyer. And I thought, well, okay, I should probably figure this out. So I called a bunch of friends who were in different careers and, you know, just asked them a few questions. Just said, look, what do you actually do at your job every day? Do you think you would like it? And do you think I would like it? I had that conversation with sort of 20 or so different friends. And uh, one of them had gone into uh, a global macro uh, hedge fund. And uh, he really thought that I might enjoy being a public markets investor because he said, look, the things you really love about physics of using data to model the world and anticipate how it's going to evolve and behave. We do all that every day, except you make real decisions and you get feedback from the market in real time. It seemed like a pretty good pitch. So I thought, why not? Uh, so I did that for a couple of years. Also really enjoyed that. In some ways, I lucked out because I was working on a currency and bond trading during the, the European sovereign debt crisis when there were a lot of really fundamentally interesting macroeconomic questions that were driving the world economy then just as there are now. In any event, after doing that for a few years, you know, I kind of woke up and thought to myself, all right, like at the end of the day, we're taking in assets from institutions and individuals that are already doing very well, and we're helping to make them do even better. When I'm sort of 90 years old, looking back at my career, is that really what I'll want to have done with it? And I thought, well, probably not. Let's probably find something more meaningful. And so then I sort of reframed the way I thought about my entire sort of career then away from chasing whatever I thought the most exciting or intellectually stimulating problem was and refocused on doing the work that I thought would have the greatest sort of positive impact for the world. And it was that single reframing that ultimately set me on the path that resulted in, in founding Osseum. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier that I spent a lot of time. I grew up with my, my parents in Nashville, Tennessee, but every summer, every long weekend, every holiday, I was with my grandparents on their farm. And one of the things that I noticed is that as my grandparents were getting up in age, I would see them getting sick at home first. Then we would take them to a physician who would sort of retroactively diagnose them with an indication and then prescribe an intervention that usually did reduce their suffering, but didn't really restore their health. And I would ask things like, why can't we anticipate what's going to make them sick ahead of time? Why don't we have more treatments that actually bring them back to the level of vitality I remembered them being at just a few months earlier? The answer that I got was, that's not how healthcare works. And I never really accepted that. And so when I started thinking about, okay, what is it that I really want to do that would be meaningful? I reflected back on those experiences with my grandparents. And, you know, one thing that I, I personally believe, Chris, is that I think that in every era in, in human history, I think almost all progress tends to be driven by just one or two industries. So, you know, we went from horse-drawn carriages to the Apollo program in about a century, primarily because of advances in mechanical and chemical engineering. And I would argue that almost all of the progress that we've enjoyed in the 50 years since the Apollo program has been a result of computerization. I believe that biotechnology will be for the next 50 years what computerization has been for the last 50. I think it's going to change every aspect of our lives. 
And so for all of those reasons, it was it was clear to me that this was the space for me to operate in. The only question was really sort of uh, how. And that's also a story that I'm happy to get into, into and that that takes us into Asim. That is a lovely transition. I mean, I'd love to hear more about the need that you perceived that led to the founding of Asim. And, and, and to frame it another way, what question is Asim the answer to? The fundamental problem that we are solving is eliminating access to human cells themselves as a barrier to innovation in cell therapies. So we believe that these living drugs, drugs that can be sort of can respond to the environment in the body after they've been deployed dynamically, are an incredibly powerful tool that can be used for treatment in our, in our case of a broad range of different blood and immune diseases. And that um, one of the major barriers to progress in this field to date has really been getting access to the stem cells that are the raw materials, if you will, of drug development. And so Osseum is sort of ending that, that shortage, working to make the process of sort of manufacturing and scaling cell therapies closer to the well-established processes that we see that we've ha- enjoyed for sort of small molecules and devices for generations. Let's turn now to the details of bone marrow banking. You touched on this earlier, but I want to emphasize it for the listeners because it's pretty important. How, again, do you get your donors to part with their bones and their bone marrow? I mean, speaking just for myself, I'm I'm using all of mine, so... <laughs> I mean, you'd have to be very generous to give up your, your bones while you were still alive. And so today, all of Osseum's donors are, are deceased organ donors. And so the United States has a very well-developed organ recovery and transplant ecosystem. There are about 15,000 organ donors in the U.S. every year. Uh, those organ donors enable 40,000 plus organ transplants and then over 100,000 uh, tissue transplants that save lives around the country and world every year. And so what we've done at Osseum is we sort of build on this pre-existing ecosystem. And so these are donors that consent to organ and tissue donation while they're alive. Their families further consent uh, typically after death to organ and tissue donation. And then there are, are nonprofit organizations. There's a network of them around the country that exists to recover organs and tissues from these donors so that their mission is to advance organ and tissue donation. And Osseum works with these nonprofit organizations. We give them uh, sort of procedures and tools for recovering the bones that we use for bone marrow. And then they send those to our facility in Indianapolis where we process the bone for marrow, and we cryopreserve it there. So the cells are banked so that they can be used in the future. I see. So we're talking about people who aren't using their bones anymore, and we're kind enough to pass them down to posterity. But something that you said struck me, so it sounds like before Osseum, there was no recovery of bone marrow from organ donors. Am I hearing that right? That is mostly true. And I say mostly true because Certainly, there are well-documented examples in the literature of bone marrow being recovered from deceased organ donors and then used clinically. And there are papers that are published for people using this bone marrow, typically to facilitate organ transplants with a reduced uh, immunosuppression regimen. And we built on a lot of that, that knowledge and that experience when we started Osseum. What is true, though, is that before us, it hadn't been done at scale. And so these were typically one-off academic studies, sort of phase one studies where they would treat a handful of patients to show that it could be done. And that was it. I mentioned that there were 
you know, 15,000 organ donors per year. And actually, over the last, in the 60 or so years since bone marrow transplantation began, over 1.5 million bone marrow transplants have been done around the world. And a minuscule fraction of those used bone marrow from deceased donors, like virtually all transplants that have ever been done have been from living donors. And that's because there wasn't any industrialized process for recovering and banking the bone marrow. And that's really what Osseum has achieved. The point is very well taken that the technology might have existed to do this, but essentially to first order, it wasn't happening. And when you think about the value of this material, which we're going to talk about later in the interview, it's almost like in 99% of organ donor cases, they just threw away a kidney. You know, there's this, there's this really important material in the human body that just there wasn't an infrastructure to recover it and there wasn't an infrastructure to use in a productive way. And that's something that Osseum is now doing. So. Now that we know where the material is coming from, and you started to tell us a little bit about this process, can you tell me how the donor material is recovered and what happens next? After an organ donor passes and the family consents to, to donation, um, organ recovery is scheduled. And so the organ procurement organizations that manage organ donation throughout the U.S. will send a team, typically to a hospital, to perform the organ recovery. And this is done within hours of the time of death. And so immediately after they recover the solid organs from the donor, they'll then recover the bone that Osseum uses for bone marrow. And we require that all of that be done, that the bone be recovered and then put on ice within about eight hours of time of death. Usually it's much faster. Usually it's within four hours. How does that stack up against other kinds of organs? Do you have a little bit more wiggle room than, say, heart, or is it all about the same? We have a little more room than the hearts. And so there's a, a sequencing that is used for organ recovery. And so thoracic organs like hearts are recovered first. After, so the hearts and lungs are recovered. So the livers, kidneys, et cetera, are recovered. And then after those sort of core um, organs are recovered, then the osseum recovery is done. Once the bone's on ice and sent to your facility, that's the part that I'm really interested in hearing about. We've developed a process that begins with solid bone. And in our case, it's vertebral bodies of the spinal column from the organ donor. And that ends with a, a bag of bone marrow. We call it HPC marrow for hematopoietic cell. Uh, marrow for that we cryopreserve in liquid nitrogen vapor. And so th there's a number of steps that we have to take to go from that, that solid bone to bone marrow for cryopreservation. Some of the, the details of those steps uh, transparently are, are in our IP, so I can only go into so much detail about, I, I can only share so much about what the steps are, but at like a very broad level, the process begins with what's called debriding, which is where you sort of clean the bone and remove soft tissue. One thing about the vertebral bodies that makes them a good source for life-saving bone marrow is that it creates a natural encasement around the bone marrow because the, the VBs are enclosed. And so that protects the cells. It insulates them from pathogens that might otherwise have entered during transit. And so that, that vertebral bone casing has to be opened. Uh, we then elude out the bone marrow. We use a centrifuge to separate the different cell types. We use filters to remove any debris, which in this case would sort of be flakes of bone so that you get sort of purified uh, marrow. There are a few other steps that, that occur. And then 
the cells are it's it's sort of diluted to a fixed concentration and then when it once it hits that concentration we cryopreserve we, we begin freezing the cells and we freeze them at a fixed rate uh, that's designed to control sort of ice formation and then they're put into a minus 80 freezer while we send samples out for testing just to confirm that that the final product is uh, suitable for transplant, that there's no infectious diseases that enter it, et cetera. Uh, once those test results come back, we move the cells from the minus 80 freezer to long-term cryo storage, which is at around negative 190 C. So in, in broad strokes, that's the process. And that's in liquid nitrogen uh, for the long-term storage? Yes. Yeah, so we have a, a tank of liquid nitrogen, sort of a large external outdoor tank at our facility. And then we pump liquid nitrogen into smaller tanks that are inside of the facility. And the liquid nitrogen sits at the bottom of the tank. The vapor rises. It's the vapor that directly touches the bags and keeps them cool. And then we monitor the temperature of each of the racks in the tank in, in, in real time, sort of keep the liquid nitrogen concentration at the right level to keep the temperature within the bounds that we set. What specific kinds of cells are you isolating or purifying and, and what kind of applications are you pursuing for these materials? So there are a few products. The baseline product is the whole bone marrow, which contains the full sort of gamish of cells that are sort of native in human bone marrow. And so the hematopoietic stem cells are there, but there's also, there's some, although it is red cell depleted, there are still some red cells in the product. It has fewer T cells than some sources of of what's sometimes called bone marrow. It has fewer T cells than uh, peripheral blood stem cell sources do, for example, but there are T cells, some T cells in it. There's B cells, there's mesenchymal cells, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so all of those are cryopreserved in the same ratios, roughly speaking, that they are naturally in, in the bone marrow. Now, one thing that we find is that the cell types vary in their significantly in how robust they are to cryopreservation and thawing. And so the very important hematopoietic stem cells can actually be frozen and thawed multiple times and remain sort of viable and functional. Some of the other cell types are less robust to this. And so the final product is stem cell enriched relative to the condition it's in in the body because those particular stem cell types are robust to cryopreservation, but otherwise it's, it's the natural state. And what kind of applications are you pursuing? Like, what, how are the cells used? By far the most common application of bone marrow clinically today are bone marrow transplants uh, for patients with leukemia. AML and ALL are the most common indications that allogeneic bone marrow transplants are used to treat. And so that's also a very important application for us. Bone marrow transplants have been used to treat patients with leukemia since the 1950s. But despite the extensive sort of clinical history with the procedure, it is still true that there are just under 10,000 people a year in the U.S. who attempt to get a bone marrow transplant and don't receive one. This is mostly because of the amount of time that it takes to successfully find an unrelated volunteer donor, time that these patients often don't have. And so one of the uh, most important and early applications of Osseum's product is enabling those patients to receive bone marrow transplants because our product is manufactured in advance. It's available off the shelf. We can ship it anywhere in a few days. And so that months-long process 
of tracking down a donor and sort of testing them and preparing them for the recovery, we essentially obviate the need for all of that. And so the basic idea is to enable more transplants to get done, improve, we hope to improve the outcomes even of transplants by enabling larger doses, for example, because we are able to recover more cells from a deceased donor using our process than you would get from a volunteer. We are optimistic about showing lower rates of GVHD than you would get from a traditional bone marrow transplant because our product has, or, or than you would get from peripheral blood stem cell transplants because our product has fewer T cells, et cetera. Kevin, for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with the term, could you give us a brief definition of GVHD? So GVHD is graft-versus-host disease. When we do a bone marrow transplant, the recipient of the bone marrow transplant gets a new immune system. Their immune system is reconstituted and has the genetic characteristics of their bone marrow donor. And so this new immune system is helpful to them in that it no longer is malignant. They don't have leukemia anymore, but it could also be harmful because the new cells of their immune system can attack the rest of their body and view it as foreign. If that reaction, that attack of the new immune system on the cells that are native to the patient's body is too strong, then they get severe graft-versus-host disease, and this can be very dangerous. Thank you. So you said you were optimistic that your formulations would have a lower likelihood of conferring graft-versus-host disease. What's the basis for that optimism? GVHD is mediated by T-cells, and the T-cells are the lymphocytes that drive the cell-mediated immunity, so they identify cells that might be infected or that might be foreign, and they can cause them to go into apoptosis. So the more T-cells that are present in the graft, the higher the risk of GVHD. The most common source of bone marrow for transplant today is actually not taken directly from the bones. There's a process called peripheral apheresis where the stem cells are mobilized using a drug to enter the peripheral blood. And then those cells can be aphoresed out, they can be selected out of the blood and then used for transplant. And with living donors, this is by far the most common method. The advantage of this method is that you don't have to actually go into a living volunteer's bones and aspirate out their bone marrow. So it's easier on the donor. The disadvantage of it is that the peripheral blood tends to have higher T-cell counts than the bone marrow does. And so our process uses true bone marrow. Even getting the same GVHD rates as traditional bone marrow transplants would be a significant improvement for, for patient outcomes. Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad we went on that digression. It really helps me understand one of the potential advantages of your approach. So, okay, bone marrow transplant for hematologic disease, major application. What are some other applications, even if they're at early stages of development, are you considering for the materials that you're generating? One of the things we can do with the whole bone marrow is rather than just crowd preserving it as is for a bone marrow transplant, we can select specific cell populations out of the bone marrow and then culture those cells. And so we could do this with the mesenchymal stem cells that are in the bone marrow. We could select T cells out of the bone marrow. We could select B cells, et cetera. And so these cells could be used for further engineering. So for example, hypothetically, if you wanted to make an allogeneic CAR-T product, the T cells from our product could be used for CAR-T. Or if you wanted to use mesenchymal stem cells to treat fistulizing Crohn's disease or GVHD, both of which are programs that we have, those cells 
are abundant in our products, not only because we can get them from the bone marrow, but because we can also enzymatically digest them off the walls of the vertebral bone. Our ability to access the bone directly gives us the ability to recover these cells in much greater volumes than you could ever ethically get from a living person who, as you pointed out early in the conversation, still needs their bones. And so this has a few advantages. One is it's not just that we can make more of the cells in more doses. It's that because we begin with a couple orders of magnitude um, more cells per donor than you would get from a volunteer, that means that we can run the cells through fewer expansions, which means that they're, they're more potent, they're closer to their native state. It also, it also lowers, lowers cost. Another advantage is that we have a very large number of donors that we screen and that we process for our core bone marrow product. And so we only use a few of those donors for these other cell therapies. And so we're able to screen for donors that we think are going to be particularly effective for these other specific applications based on characteristics of the donor that we've identified as those that are sort of tightly related to sort of the, the potency of the different uh, cell types. And so this goes back to the framework that we talked about earlier around really industrializing this and having a, a sort of higher velocity and higher integrity process for, for manufacturing cell therapies. You mentioned a few indications that you might want to target down the road, and that brings me to a subject that I wanted to ask you about. So many of our audience members are involved in drug development, as are many of the guests on this show. And so I, and they probably, are wondering, do you have to do clinical trials for a cellular product? Yes. And is it the same with drugs, like phase one, two, three? The general answer to that is yes. What you have to do is you have to get a BLA, a biologics uh, application. It's equivalent to the sort of new drug application that you would get for a small molecule. There's a different branch of the FDA you work with. You work with CBER, which manages biologics, but it's still phase one, two, and three. And the goals at each phase are similar. And so for most of our programs, like the program for treating GVHD, they, they're going through this pathway. There are certain exceptions to this. And so one of the things that the FDA looks at is the extent to which the product you're making has been manipulated. And if it is less than minimally manipulated and it's used homologously, and homologously means that the cells are serving the same function in the recipient of the cells that they served in the body of the donor, then the applicable regulatory framework can be different because the idea being that your intervention is, is less radical. One way to think about this, Chris, is that if you look at one extreme, organ transplants, well, when you do an organ transplant, there's not a, an IND associated with that. You're taking an organ from one person and you're putting it into someone else. There's no drug. It's just part of the human body, right? It's very important that you do sort of testing on the donor to confirm that you're not going to confer a disease to the recipient by giving them that organ. And it's important that the processes they use to do the recovery are ones that are, are not going to damage the organ or infect it before you do the transplant. But you don't have to get an IND for a heart or a kidney. They're not drugs. They're, they're part of the body, right? And so if you're doing a bone marrow transplant where the cells are not manipulated significantly, it is treated more like that. I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about ongoing clinical programs. I know you can't tell me everything that's going on, but... I just wondered if you wanted to tell us about the kind of where you are in the clinical trial process and like how your products are coming along. We have a handful of clinical programs. The first one is the PRESERVE study. In that study, we're treating patients 
with acute myeloid and acute lymphoid leukemia. And we're focusing on patients who did not readily or, or speedily find a volunteer donor under the existing ecosystem, because our goal is to sort of dramatically increase the percentage of patients who ultimately get bone marrow transplants. So that is a, a pivotal study in that we'll, we'll do this study and then based on the data from that, uh, begin doing bone marrow transplants sort of at scale. Bone marrow transplants are not FDA regulated. They're treated like organ transplants uh, by law. And so we've worked with the FDA and described our process to them, and they've sort of confirmed that our process will be treated similarly to living donor bone marrow transplants today, as long as they're for homologous use. And so they need to serve the same function. And the recipient they did in the donor, there are, are limitations on how much engineering or how much processing we would do on, on those cells. For some of our other programs, though, like the GVHD treatment program, that does use cells that have been much further modified and further manufactured. And so those programs are, are under IND. And so we have a clinical trial for treating graft-versus-host disease. There's some complementarity between this program and our, our bone marrow transplant program, because the idea is that we not only want to make it easier for people to get access for blood cancer patients to get access to bone marrow, we also want to improve their outcomes and make the procedure safer. And so GVHD is one of the major complications that patients suffer after conventional bone marrow transplants, and we want to dramatically reduce the incidence of that so that more patients can benefit from the procedure. I want to move on and do a little speculation. You're a science fiction fan, right? This is true. You're comfortable with a little bit of speculation? I enjoy it. So you've said in reference to Ossian, we're building a future in which healthcare is about preserving health, not just treating symptoms. So thus far in the interview, we've talked mostly about how your products could help people who are sick. But it sounds like you're imagining a role for cell therapies and your products in particular in some form or flavor of preventive medicine. First, I'd like you to address the claim that I just made, whether you agree or disagree, and then move on. Tell us about this future of healthcare that you're imagining in which cell therapies are used to preserve health. One of the things about prevention that is most powerful is that if you achieve it, you can both improve long-term health relative to sort of retrospective treatment and ultimately lower cost, right? And so for us, sort of prevention is kind of a, a North Star. If, if we think about our goal of trying to broadly improve human health, one bodily system that's involved in our response to essentially all disease at one level or another is the immune system. And at Osseum, what we're really building is the ability to systematically reconstitute, restart, reset, renew the human immune system. Because that's what a bone marrow transplant is. For the rest of the recipient's life, they will produce blood and immune cells from their donor. And so Today, bone marrow transplants are really only used for patients who have uh, malignancies, whose, whose immune systems have formed a liquid tumor. But that's because, uh, one, it's difficult to get access to the cells today, and so it doesn't make sense to use it outside of the extreme cases. Two, because the procedures today are actually quite dangerous. There's the risk of graft-versus-host disease as well as uh, risk associated with the conditioning the patients have to do. You have to eliminate their native immune system, all sorts of things that make it only appropriate for people who are already very sick. But Osseum is systematically working on eliminating all of those barriers, making the transplants much safer, making them much easier, 
ultimately making them more affordable, more accessible. And if you can achieve all of that, then the number of patients in the universe of situations where it might make sense to do a bone marrow transplant could be much broader. And as that happens, it means that more people would have the ability to basically have their immune systems reset in a way that would improve their ability to respond to disease that they encounter in their environment, whether it's a disease that results from the accumulation of damage in the body or exposure to an external pathogen. And so if bone marrow transplants are ultimately used this way, right, then that could allow people, especially as they age, to be significantly more robust to disease in, in a very broad way. I have a technical question about this preventive medicine use of bone marrow transplant. So currently, if you're getting a bone marrow transplant, it means you have a hematologic disease. And so the conditioning that you undergo, it does two things. One is it gets rid of the sick cells. As you said earlier, when you get rid of the patient's original immune system, you get rid of the cancer that's inside it as well. And it also opens up the niche for occupation by the new cells that are transplanted in. Now, in a preventive paradigm, what I'm imagining is that you would do bone marrow transplants, but without ablation of the native immune system. You wouldn't put the patient through this harrowing experience of combination of, I think they use primarily chemotherapeutic drugs to ablate the, the native immune system nowadays. Am I getting that right? It's, it's more that you just be supplementing or adding younger, more robust cells into a person that has an aged immune system without doing any kind of dangerous conditioning? So I should emphasize that we're very much not working on this now. This is a, a hypothetical application of bone marrow transplants. I invited you to speculate. In the future, yes, this is speculation. Okay, so that's true. The conditioning regimen that patients undergo prior to receiving a bone marrow transplant ablates their native bone marrow, and that regimen is dangerous. It leaves them immunocompromised, typically for about a month between the time when their native immune system is ablated and when the new one grafts, and during that period, they're at risk of infection. And so any effort that was made to make bone marrow transplants more widely available would have to work without the need for that ablation. And so there are a few ways you could do this. You could target the person's native hematopoietic stem cells and remove them. You could have an antibody that targeted those so that you could create room for the new cells to engraft without needing to have the patient undergo chemotherapy. And there are some groups that have, have worked on those. You could also uh, rely on, on the new cells outcompeting the old ones. And so if you had a sufficiently young and healthy donor, which by the way, could be your younger self if you cryopreserved your bone marrow earlier, Although in that case, you could not get the marrow from the vertebral bodies. No, that's right. That's right. In that case, you would want to do a more traditional aspiration of the cells from the iliac crest, which is the procedure that you know was used for bone marrow transplants for 40 years before peripheral aphoresis became commonplace. Sure. It's what most of us think of when we think of bone marrow donation. Exactly. Exactly. So you could imagine having some of your cells recovered that way when you were young or even in middle age. Uh, having those cryopreserved, and then later having them infused into your older self. And the idea is that those younger cells should have some competitive advantage over your older hematopoietic stem cells and gradually replace them. And these techniques are not mutually exclusive, right? You could target your existing cells with an antibody, and you could later do an infusion of, of your younger cells to enter those niches. This brings us closer to another issue I wanted to ask you about. You're a mentor for the Longevity Biotech Fellowship. 
which is a spiritual descendant of the on-deck longevity biotech program that held the event where you and I first got to know each other. And so the question I want to ask you, and I think what some of our listeners have probably been wondering for the entire duration of the interview up to that point, is how does Osseum fit into the rubric of longevity biotech? I would argue that basically almost every therapeutics company and the vast majority of healthcare companies are and have always been longevity companies. They just, they just didn't know it. They just didn't frame it that way. Very few people would say, yeah, you know, we want people to live to exactly age 83. And then it's okay if everyone does. Like that's not, <laughs> we don't, we don't accept that, right? We all have a common desire to extend our healthy lifespan, our health span. And so what we've realized at Osseum is that the, the set of innovations that's going to allow us to extend our health span meaningfully from the you know 60 or 70 years that people have now before their health starts to deteriorate significantly toward something that gives us sort of another chapter of meaningful, healthy life, that that set of tools is going to look very different from the set that allowed us to go from the 40 to 50 year average lifespans that people had a century ago to today. A lot of that innovation was about limiting the spread of infectious diseases and re reducing infant mortality and improving sanitation. And I think as we go to this next level, therapeutics that actually can meaningfully improve the body's ability to maintain and heal itself and to fight disease as we age are going to be really important. Really, what Osseum is, is an immunological engineering company. We're developing tools for doing more robust, more powerful, and more reliable and scalable reengineering of the human immune system. And as we succeed at doing that, it's going to make it much easier for people to have lower susceptibility to disease, whether it's infectious, new infectious diseases that emerge that have a differential impact on older people than younger people because the human population is versioned to them, as we saw with COVID-19, to diseases that emerge because of accumulating damage in the, in the body, that the older immune system is much less adept at identifying and eradicating like tumors than younger immune systems are. So we, we would basically say that essentially every vision of longevity requires us dramatically improving our immune system's effectiveness over time. Great answer. More speculation now. 10 years from now, you're the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. And you've had all the success you ever imagined. What does that look like? So today we're measuring the number of patients we treat in the dozens. And so 10 years from now, I'd like to be measuring that by the, the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, depending on whether we're global or not. It is also true that we are very, very focused on severe life-threatening diseases that only affect a fraction of the population right now um, because we want to have the maximum impact possible with the resources that we have today. But as the company grows and our resource set grows, we want to be able to address indications that affect a much broader swath of, of the human population. And we also want to be able to encourage people to take a more proactive role in their long-term health. And so one thing that we're looking at doing in the long term is doing autologous bone marrow banking, which would be where someone could bank their own bone marrow with us. And it's much the way I described earlier for sort of later use. In order for that to make sense, you need to have a large number of applications of those cells 
which are either approved or very likely to be clinically approved and available by the time you reach the age to need them. There's some synergy between these goals and that right now we're focusing on getting applications of stem cell therapies approved by showing robustly in the clinic that we can use those to save and improve lives. As that work yields more approved drugs, the value of having your own stem cells available for use later in life increases. And so what we ultimately want to do is make banking your stem cells as common sense and as obvious to people as saving money in your 401k for retirement is. It's sort of a biological investment in your future. Well, those goals sound absolutely fantastic, and we certainly wish you the best. Kevin Caldwell of Ossium Health, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me, Chris. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.